For those of you who are guests, we have spent the last several months working our way through Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, then Malachi. So we caught the tail end, the very tail end, of Old Testament history through that progression. And what we were going to do today, I say we, what I was going to do today was work through intertestamental period before we move into Matthew, which will be our next book that we work through. However, I didn't think it was right to do that without setting the big picture of the Old Testament before we went into the intertestamental period. Because we just saw the end. The only Old Testament work we've done since I've been here has been that tail end of history. So what I wanted to do today was cover the entire Old Testament. So that's what we're going to do. Okay, you laugh. You laugh. I'm not kidding, okay? Yeah. So, um, and some of you all may have seen as well that I posted an article that Al Mohler wrote um, in response to some statements that Andy Stanley has made. And again, not to throw out celebrity preacher names, but Andy Stanley has recently made statements that if we're going to move forward as Christians in our culture, that we have to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, which is just one of the craziest things I've ever heard in my life. I like Andy Stanley. I've read several of his books. I've heard some of his messages that I thought were pretty good, but that's, that's borderline heresy. Again, Moeller touched on that in the article, and I encourage you to read that article. Because here's the deal. We cannot, 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 cannot unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament as New Testament Christians. We can't do it. Again, 39 books, and we'll talk about that in a second. Actually, let me go ahead and pull that up. I know you can't see this. We'll talk about this in a second. If you, if, if you want these printouts, let me know. I'll print you a set out. There are several things that I'm going to show up here today. 39 books make up our Old Testament. Okay, And what I want you to see as we look into this this morning, you see those the green ones there? That's the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch, the Torah, the Law. Okay, Then those blue books are the history books. I'm sorry, the Pentateuch runs from Genesis to Deuteronomy. The blue books are the history books, and they run from Joshua up through what we looked at in Esther, which actually ends in Nehemiah. So the Bible, the Old Testament, is historically laid out from Genesis to Nehemiah, basically. Esther's thrown in there. It happened in the middle of Ezra. We saw that. So, the first part of the Old Testament is in order, historical order. And when you close the book on Nehemiah, that's the end of Old Testament history. But that's not all the Old Testament because we've got the poetry or wisdom books, which is Job through Song of Solomon. And then we've got the minor prophets, which is, I'm sorry, major prophets, which is Isaiah through Daniel. And then the minor prophets, which are Hosea through Malachi. So I want you to keep in mind what we're going to cover this morning is going to cover that top shelf. And the stuff that happens in the poetry books, in the minor prophets, in the major prophets fit into that history timeline on the top shelf, which is Genesis through Nehemiah. And it t- I didn't know this until well into my adult years, so maybe you know this, maybe you don't. But Genesis through Nehemiah is in historical order in your Old Testament. Okay? Now... 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles have some overlap. And the stuff that happens after 2nd Chronicles, 2nd Chronicles actually ends with the same sentence that Ezra begins with. You can check that out when you get time. So, but when we close the book on Malachi, which was around the same time period as Nehemiah, that's the end of the Old Testament period. And that's what we want to cover today. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to run as fast as I can, okay, to get through this. So Genesis 1.1. Y'all know this, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I want to speak to that for a second. There was nothing except God before God created the heavens and the earth. And God existed in perfect unity within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, in perfect community, perfectly glorified in and of Himself. He did not have to do this. God was not lonely one day, which there was no day in eternity past, and wake up and say, man, I wish I had somebody to hang out with. Father, Son, and Spirit were in perfect unity within the Trinity. But God had a plan. 
And that's what I want us to see today more than anything as we work through the Old Testament. Why did God do what He did? Why did God have the time of the Old Testament and then establish a new covenant in the New Testament through Jesus? Why did He do that? It's because He had a plan. This is all on purpose. This is all God's plan. So why did He do it? Here's, why does God do anything that He does? It's for His glory. Now again, He existed in perfect glory, Father, Son, and Spirit. So it wasn't like He needed more glory. He wanted to share that glory with us. So He created. Now I'm, I'm, I'm going to do, I've got two New Testament references today and the rest of this is going to be all Old Testament. But I want to show you this plan because we see the plan in the New Testament in Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him when? Before the foundation of the world. Before Genesis 1-1. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. That's the plan. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, His plan, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now the main thing I want you to see out of that, two things, is that this plan was before the foundation of the world and this plan was fulfilled in Christ to the praise of God's glorious grace. So the Old Testament is not a non-grace book or non-grace testament. And we, we hear that. Old Testament's about sacrifice and law and the New Testament's about grace. And that's not true. It's all about grace. It's all about God's glory. It's all about Jesus. We'll see at the end, Jesus says, it's these, these Old Testament scriptures that speak of Him. So there's a plan in place. Before Genesis 1-1, there was a plan in place. And God in Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit had a perfect plan and they were going to enact it to the praise of God's glorious grace. That's imperative that we understand. We cannot unhitch ourselves from the rest of God's plan, which is what we would do if we unhitched ourselves from the Old Testament. So, there was creation. There were six days. I do believe they were six literal days. Why do I believe that? Because God called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. How long is an evening and a morning? 24 hours. Okay? I'm not going to jump up on here and pound but I think But I think it's evident Six literal days, God created everything that we see. Okay, He spoke things into existence. He formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, and He formed Eve out of the rib of Adam. And when He finished, He said, it's very good. So you have Adam and Eve, the first two people. Again, literal people. There was a literal Adam, a literal Eve, from whom all the nations of the earth have their heritage and their inheritance from. And then something happens. It doesn't take very long. A serpent slithers into the garden where God had placed Adam and Eve. And he tempts Eve. And he says, did God really say? And that will be his pattern throughout the scriptures. When we get into Matthew and you see him speaking to Jesus, what's he say? God said this. So do you really know what he said? It's it's imperative that we know what God said. Because sin entered into the human race when Eve didn't line herself up with what God said and let the serpent deceive her. So she partook of the fruit. She gave it to her husband who was there with him. Men, that's on us. Passive males are a scourge to the earth. Still. So the serpent slithers in. Sin enters into the, into the, uh, the bloodline, to the human bloodline, into our very DNA. And very early on, we see that God has a plan. God did not react and change His plan when the fruit was eaten. Okay? God did not leave this to chance. This is God's plan for God's 
glory through Christ. It's not left a chance. This is God's plan. And he says in his plan, when he curses the serpent, when he curses the woman, when he curses the man, the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now listen, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Satan and the woman. Again, not the serpent is indicative of, of, of Satan. Satan entered into the serpent, made the serpent do what he did. Later on in Revelation 20, Satan is called the serpent of old, the dragon. He grows from a serpent to a dragon, by the way, between Genesis and Revelation. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between Satan and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Who is he? The seed that will crush the head of the serpent is who? Is Jesus. So very early on, very, very, very early on, as soon as sin enters into the existence, into the creation, God has a plan. And that plan is for a seed who will crush the head of a serpent. You crush the enemy underneath my feet. We're in Christ. See how this works? God's got a plan. And it's really good. So that's the curse upon uh, the serpent. Um, And we're going to leave that there. He also curses the woman. And he says several things to her. What will happen to her? He curses the man, says that the things that he says to him. Now, again, I'm, I'm flying through some of these. Now, they're naked and ashamed. God does something. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. They've clothed themselves with a, a leaf, fig leaves. But God makes garments of skins and clothes them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And he doesn't finish that sentence, by the way. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Again, foreshadowing. There had to be the shedding of blood to cover their sins. That's why animals had to die. That's why God used animal skins. So their sin brought about the first death, and that death was in an animal that God killed to cover them with the animal skins. There had to be blood shed. It's part of the plan. Okay? So then, we see, it don't take very long, next generation, they've got Cain and Abel, who are their sons. What happens? Cain kills Abel. So this sin is, again, inherent in us. It's who we are. So Cain kills Abel. God gives um, Adam and Eve another son named Seth. And we trace Seth's heritage up to a guy named Noah. Everybody's familiar with Noah, right? Noah and the happy animals on the little boat. Okay. The story of Noah is uh, Genesis 6 through 9. A literal ark with exact measurements. If you want to see what it looks like, go up to Kentucky. They've got one sitting there. It's amazing. And it is huge. Huge. That's all I'm going to say. Um, and it says, and some people talk about the flood, and was it a literal flood? Did it cover all the earth? Genesis seven nineteen, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Now, what does that sound like? You've got to do some mental gymnastics, some linguistic gymnastics to say this was not a worldwide flood. I think. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious. And, and why, why would we want to explain this away? Science is on our side. I'll tell you all that right now. They don't know it, but they are. They're on our side. This, this proves science right every time that science is right, which is not always right. So anyway, a worldwide flood because evil had come and come and come and piled up and piled up and piled up. And God looked and he saw that the intent of man's heart was evil continually. Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. Noah and his family. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. So let's do the math, right? Eight people. Okay, four pairs. Fraction. No, we won't do fractions. We'll stop there. And they had seven pairs of clean animals and a pair of unclean animals to preserve life. Again, go to the ark in Kentucky if you ever can and get really good information about how this works and, it, you know, how, which of kind and that kind of thing. But anyway, flood comes, destroys all the earth except for Noah and his kin. Okay? Now, once the flood subsides, God gives meat to eat for the first time, by the way. They, they were vegetarians for, before the flood. And then God gives them meat to eat. Um, and then God does this. 
Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my, here's a huge word, covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The Old Testament is a book of covenants. It literally means Old Covenant. That's what Old Testament means. And covenants are made from greater to the lesser. A greater person establishes a covenant with a lesser person. God establishes this covenant with Noah, with all human beings after him, all the animals, and says, I'll never again destroy the whole earth with a flood. And I'll give you a sign to show you that I mean what I say. When you see the bow in the clouds, I'll remember, you remember that I'll remember. Okay? So that's what's going on with that. Now, so now you've got eight people... And you've got Noah's three sons and his wives, and the whole earth is populated from them. Now, again, I don't know if you can see this or not, but this is where the sons of Noah would spread out to. And they would populate the whole earth. So Japheth would move up into the European area, um, Shem would move into the Asian area, and Ham would move into the African area. Okay? Really neat to research that out. There's some wild stuff out there about that. But it's really neat to research that out and see how all that intertwines. But it literally says, when you follow the bloodlines in the Scripture, you see that this is where these people went. So, what are we primarily? Because we're pretty white, Sarginetta. So, we're mostly Japhethites. Because our, our ancestors came from Europe. Okay? So we can trace our ancestry back. So forget that DNA stuff. You don't have to pay 70 bucks. <laughs> Japheth, okay? That, that, there's your heritage, most of you anyway. So just so you can see that, and again, trace that out. The Scripture says that as well. So something else happens after that. All the people of earth come together before they spread out, and they say, we're going to build a tower. And we're going to build a tower all the way up to heaven which was exalting themselves to be like God. God doesn't like that idea. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Be careful of trying to make a name for yourself, by the way. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Well, spoiler alert. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Those arrows that you saw with Shem, Ham, and Japheth, that's the way that they were dispersed by God's doing after the Tower of Babel. So, after that we see some lineage and who was who. And we come to a guy named Terah. T-E-R-A-H, okay, in Genesis 11. We're spending most of our time in Genesis this morning, by the way. So don't freak out and think, we're never going to get through this. Stay with me, okay? Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah. Familiar names, right? And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, was Iscah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. That's important information to have. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So then we start to follow 
our story turns down into one man primarily, the man Abram. Again, God's got a plan. God's doing something on purpose. And he focuses his attention on a man named Abram. And Genesis 12 to 25 paint the picture of the man Abram who would become Abraham. And in the middle of that uh, story, uh, occasion, historical account, Genesis 15 looms very large. I'm going to read Genesis 15. If you've got a Bible and you want to follow around, this is paramount. This is huge in the plan of God. I couldn't skip by Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless in the air of my house as Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, again, huge. Understand that. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man, this servant, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And God brought Abram outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now this man has had no children. He's in his 90s. His wife is approaching 90 and they've got no kids. And God says, Your offspring are going to be like the stars in the sky. How would you react? And he, Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. How did Abram achieve righteousness? He didn't achieve righteousness. It was a gift, a gift of faith given by God and Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. You would not believe God. And God's plan, if God doesn't do something special to awaken you to His plan. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? It's a good question. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Picture is they're cutting a covenant. God's making a covenant with Abram. And most of you all know this, but they would cut the animals in half, lay them on opposite sides of a ditch, let the blood drain down in the ditch. And the two parties that were making the covenant would walk through the blood path, and the blood that splattered up on them was their way of saying, if I break this covenant... Let what happened to these animals happen to me. Let it be my blood that is spilled. And that's exactly what's going on here as he cuts these animals in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And, the sun, and as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, while he's asleep, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. We'll see that in Exodus. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now listen to this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now remember, both parties of the covenant usually pass through the pieces. Abram does not pass through these pieces. God, in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, passed between the pieces. So God is saying, when you break this covenant, it will be my blood that is spilled. I will pay the penalty for your unfaithfulness. God has a plan. Amen. And that plan includes Him spilling His own blood to cover the transgressions that we have in the covenant that He has established for us. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, who's sleeping, by the way, remember, he's sleeping, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And chapter 15 ends with Abram getting this tremendous blessing, this tremendous promise, and God saying, I'll take the blame when you break the covenant. Wow. It's huge. 
Genesis 17, God sets forth the covenant of circumcision that every male in the household of Abram and his descendants would have the foreskin circumcised on every male descendant. And if they weren't, they would be cut off from the covenant. So that's where circumcision comes from. Genesis 17 and 18, God promises specifically Abram and Sarai are going to have a son and his name is going to be Isaac. That happens in Genesis 21. Genesis 22, we see a picture of the coming Christ and His crucifixion when God commands Abraham now to go and sacrifice his only son who he had when he was 100 and Sarah was 90. Sarah's name is now Sarah. He says, take him up on a mountain and kill him. Sacrifice him. Show me that you love me more than him. Wow. Can't fathom it. Abraham's going to do it. God provides a sacrifice and spares the son of Abraham. Again, picturesque of him sparing us and sending his son to die for us. Isaac grows up and inherits everything that his father had and was given, and they were wealthy. Isaac marries a woman named Rebekah. God promises Isaac the same blessings of his father, Abraham. And then something happens in Genesis 25. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Okay. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. There's a lot of barrenness going around here. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And you see it says her children struggled together, so there's more than one. So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. That's not how things worked back then. When her, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, and his body like a hairy cloak. So they called him Elmo, no, Esau. <laughs> Tickle me Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, which means supplanter. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So she had twins. God had already said, the older is going to serve the younger. So Esau is going to serve Jacob. God has a plan. And it's going to happen. And it does happen. It's kind of tricky how all that works out though because Jacob, uh, Esau comes in from the field one day. He's real hungry. Jacob's standing there with some soup. And he's like, give me some of that. He's like, give me your birthright. He's like, what good's a birthright? If I die, you can have my birthright. So he sells his birthright, Esau does, for a bowl of stew or lentils. Depends on how you, what your translation says. And then later, Jacob's mommy, who likes him better than Esau, says, I got a plan. What we're going to do is we're going to steal your brother's blessing from your father who's blind now and he can't see real good. Go in and put some of your brother's clothes on. I'll tape some goat's fur to your arms because your brother's hairy, remember? Remember red, hairy Esau? And while your brother's gone, you go in, I'll prepare some food, you take it in and ask him to bless you because he's going to think that you're Esau. And that's what Jacob does. He goes in with goat's hair glued to his arm somehow. I don't know how that works. And Isaac said, come here, let me smell you. See if, I can see if it's really you, Esau. He says, your voice sounds like Jacob, but you smell like a man of the outdoors like Esau. So here's the blessing. So then he leaves. Esau comes in, he says, I prepared the game. You asked me to prepare. He's like, what? You did what? Who are you? He's like, I'm Esau. He's like, I just gave your blessing to your brother. Esau's furious. He's going to kill Jacob. Mommy says, run away to my, my people. So Jacob runs away. He leaves and he goes to Laban, which is Rebekah's people. But on his way, something happens. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of, of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. That's comfortable. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. I like Bethel better than Luz. What about y'all? Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Sounds like a tithe, doesn't it? That's already happened in past, but that's exactly what's going on. So Jacob sees this vision of this stair or this ladder, angels coming up and down on it later. Jesus would say, that's me. Jacob saw me. Okay? So Jacob is getting the inheritance of Abraham and Isaac. He goes away and he marries two women and gets two maidservants with these two women. Lee and Rachel become his wives. They have maids named Zilpah and Bilhah. Okay? And on the way back, because he's going to go back home and see what happens because he's got these wives and he's got all these kids. There's a good Rich Mullins song there, by the way. On the way back, Jacob literally wrestles with God. And God does something peculiar. Genesis 32. We're almost done with Genesis, y'all. The same night he arose and took his two wives, Jacob did, his two female servants and his eleven children. We'll talk about them in a second. And crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, you wrestlers need to pay attention because God's wrestling with Jacob. That's crazy. When, he, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Don't try that, guys. It's not going to work, okay? Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face. That's how we know the man that he was wrestling with was God. For I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. And he would limp the rest of his life. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Listen, God changes people's names. He didn't change Abram's to Abraham, Sarai's to Sarah. He changes Jacob's to Israel, which means strives with God. God's got a plan, and He's got the authority to change your name if He wants to. So here comes Israel, limping on His hip. You, I don't know if you'll be able to see this or not. Can anybody see that? So Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah had Jacob and others. But Jacob marries Leah and Rachel, has the handmaid Zilpah and Bilhah. They have kids. Okay? Thirteen kids are named. Twelve sons and a daughter. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, Asher, Dan, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin, who become the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay? Just want you to see where all this stuff is coming from. Okay? So his next to youngest son is named Joseph. And pretty much the rest of Genesis is mostly about Joseph and what happens with him. (coughs) Starting in Genesis 37. He has some dreams, right? Y'all know this story? He's like, the moon and the sun and all these sheaves bowed down to me. And they're like, you think we're going to bow down to you, your brothers and your mom and your daddy? He said, I'm just saying I had this dream, man. Then he has another one. He tells him again, he's his daddy's favorite kid because he's Rachel's first kid. And Rachel was the woman that he loved the most, Israel loved the most. So he makes him this coat of many colors, very colored tunic if you want to get technical. And he wears it and his brothers hate him because he's that kid. Oh, you're the one that mom and dad like the most. Yeah, I like your pretty coat, Joseph. And they ate him. So one day his dad sends him to check on his brothers who are out tending the flock somewhere. And his brothers are like, let's kill him. I mean, let's just kill him. Because there's a lot of brothers killing brothers in, in the scripture, right? It happens a lot. And then the oldest guy's like, no, let's, let's not kill him. And he was going to save him and be like the hero and get dad's favor. So they put him down in a pit. And he's like saying, let's not kill him. Let's do something else. And all of a sudden this caravan of traders comes by and they're like let's sell him to them 
Good idea. So they sell them to, the, to these Midianite traders who are going down to Egypt. Judah comes back and he's like, wait, oh, Reuben comes back. And he's like, oh, crap, they took him. Where'd he go? We sold him to some traders, okay? So he's sold into slavery and he's sold in the land of Egypt. So he was in Canaan. He gets sold down in Egypt to a man named Potiphar. Well, Potiphar notices this guy Joseph is good. So he puts everything in his house under his care. He says he doesn't worry about anything, nothing at all. Potiphar's wife likes Joseph, and she kind of comes up and says, Hey, baby, let's me and you, you know, see what we can do about that coat of many colors. There's no coat of many colors at this point, by the way. So he's like, No, 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 no. My master has entrusted me with everything in his house but you. And I wouldn't dare sin against God and do anything with you like that. So she presses and presses and presses. And one day she grabs him by the cloak and he runs away and it literally tears his shirt off of him. And she yells and says, hey, this Hebrew, which is what they're calling these Israelites at this time, this Hebrew was trying to make sport of me and I've got his cloak to show. So Potiphar comes home. His wife's got Joseph's cloak. She's like, Joseph tried to take advantage of me. <laughs> and he's like, it's okay, honey, I'll throw him in jail, which he does. So Joseph goes to jail. While he's in jail, the jailer's like, everything this guy touches turns to gold. So he pretty much runs the jail. I mean, he's like, everywhere he goes, he's just put in charge. That's what happens. So he's running the jail pretty much. Well, one, one night, uh, the baker for Pharaoh, who was the leader of Egypt, and the cupbearer get put in prison. And so they're all hanging out in prison, you know, playing cards, because that's what you do in prison, and doing pull-ups. They're doing pull-ups and playing cards in prison. Well, one night, the baker and the cupbearer have bad dreams and they wake up and they look terrible. Joseph's like, what's wrong with you guys? They're like, we had bad dreams. Like, tell me your dream. They tell him their dreams. Joseph says, this is what these dreams mean. He tells the cupbearer, he's like, your dream means that you're going to be reinstated as cupbearer to the king, to Pharaoh. And the baker's like, tell me what my dream means. He's like, well, your dream means that you're going to get killed and the birds are going to pluck your eyes out of your head. And actually everything he says becomes true. Cupbearer gets reinstated. As he's leaving, Joseph says, don't forget me. And then the baker gets killed and the birds pluck his eyes out. Um, but guess who gets forgotten in jail? Joseph. A couple years later, a couple of years later, we brushed by that real quick. Dude rotted in a pit for two more years. And then Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, has this dream that's just troubling about these skinny ears that eat the gaunt ears of, or the plump ears of grain and these skinny cows that eat the plump cows. And he's like, what's this mean? And the cupbearer's like, dope. I knew I forgot something. There's this guy named Joseph in prison and he interpreted the dreams when you reinstated me and when you killed the baker. I bet you he can interpret your dream. Pharaoh says, send for him. Because none of the magicians, none of the magic people could do anything with his dreams. Joseph comes up, they shave him, they set him in front of him. I love this. If you read the account, Pharaoh says, it says that you, they tell me that you can interpret dreams. Joseph's like, I can't interpret dreams. That's God's business. <laughs> so he lets him know, it's not me. So uh, Pharaoh tells him his dream. Joseph says, what's going to happen is there's going to be seven years of plenty, and then there's going to be seven years of famine. So you need to prepare so Pharaoh says, I got an idea. Why don't you prepare? You'll run this joint. I'll, I'll sit back. You take it. And Joseph gets put basically as prime minister of Egypt, which is the most powerful country in the world, and he's taking care of everything, okay? And they store up grain for seven years, more grain than they could imagine. And then the seven years of famine come. Well, the famine is pretty much region-wide. Guess who's hungry? Joseph's brothers and family back in the land of Canaan. So Israel, their father, says, Hey, I hear there's grain in Egypt. Why don't y'all go down to Egypt and get us some grain? Cool. So they go down to Egypt. Well, who do they think they run into? If you're going to get grain, you're going to talk to Joseph. Of course, by this, this time, his name is Zaphnath Paneah, which is a major upgrade from Joseph, by the way. <laughs> and they don't know him, but he knows them. And they're like, Hey, we're here to get some grain. He's like, You're spies. They're like, what? We just, we just want some grain. No, you've come to spy out the land and see where our storehouses are. You're spies. You're going to stay here. They're like, oh, no, 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 no. We're just, we've got an old father. We've got a younger brother who's back home, and we need to take them some food. He said, well, I'm going to make sure you're telling me the truth. I'll give you food, but I'm going to keep one of you here, and you're going to have to bring back your younger brother to prove to me that you're not spies. They're like, we couldn't do that. Our father would go to the grave if our younger brother died. We can't bring him down here. He's like, I'm just telling you, I'm keeping one of you here, and unless you bring your younger brother back, this is how this is going to end, because I think you're spies. Crap. Okay, fine, we'll do it. So they leave. Simeon stays behind in jail, 
And as they're going back, they, when they get back, they open their sacks. Well, all their money that they had paid for their grain with was back in their sacks. And they're like, did you pay? I did pay. Did you? I did pay. And they're talking amongst each other, and they're like, why is our money back in our sack? Jacob's like, or Israel, their dad is just like, you know what, just forget it. You're a bunch of boneheads, forget it. Well, their money runs out. I mean, their food runs out, and so Israel says, go back down to Egypt. They said, listen, we cannot go to Egypt unless we take Benjamin with us. He said, no way, no how are you taking Benjamin with you. He's like, it's not going to happen. And he's like, the guy was pretty clear, unless we brought Benjamin back, you know, Simeon's still down there, Dad. You know, we might want to go get him. And then finally Israel agrees and says, fine, let him go. If he dies, I'll just mourn the rest of my life. No big deal. So they go back down. Okay? And then as they go down, they come in. They're like, hey, by the way, when we got back up there before, probably years before, our money was back in our sacks. Y'all know anything about that? The guy's like, you're fine. Don't sweat it. This is Joseph's uh, soft enough Panea's servant. He's like, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Okay? So they come down and they're getting their stuff back. And they've got Benjamin with them. And here comes Joseph. And they're like, here's our younger brother. And he has to run out of the room because he can't contain himself. He's like, that's my younger brother. And, they, and then he comes back in, he composes, how's your dad? Dad's fine. How's Simeon? He's fine, I'll go get him. So they come out, and he has a dinner for him, and he lays out food for him, and he lays it out in order of their birth. And they're kind of like, and Benjamin, the youngest, gets the biggest portion, and they're kind of like, what's going on here? This is weird. So they get the food, and he's like, you know, take your food back, whatever, that's fine. And they're all going back. But he slips his silver cup into their packs. The cup that he uses for divination. And so as they get up the road, he sends his servant, and the servant's like, Hey, y'all, stop. Stop. One of y'all took my master's cup. They're like, No, we did not. We did not take the cup, I promise. And the servant says, Whoever has the cup is going to die. Well, who do you think he put it in? He put it in Benjamin's bag. And he opens it up. He's like, Benjamin, you've got the cup. You're going to die. And they're like, No, no, no. Let's go back. We want to explain ourselves. We didn't do this. So they go back, and finally Joseph reveals himself to them. And he says, guys, it's me. It's Joseph. And there's more years of famine coming. Go back and get Dad and come back down here because I'm going to take care of y'all. And they're like, okay. So Pharaoh says, go get your dad, Joseph. And he does. And they go up, and they get Dad, and they bring him back. We're going to skip that part. I'm not going to read that part. They go up, and they pick up Dad. And actually, God's done some work because God's got a plan, y'all. He's done some work ahead of them. So Israel took his journey with all that he had. This is Israel and his family coming down to Egypt and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. He had told Abraham, your descendants will go down to a foreign country. They'll be oppressed for a time, but they'll come out of that place at a later, after four generations. And he's telling Israel here, go on down. You're going to see Joseph. He's going to close your eyes. Everything's going to be fine which is exactly what happens. They go down, they get placed in um, Goshen, and Israel sees Joseph's sons who are Ephraim and Manasseh. You might hear them later on, half-tribes. Jacob blesses his sons. Jacob dies in Genesis 49:33. Joseph's brothers are afraid that he's going to kill them now that dad's dead. Joseph says, don't sweat it, guys. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good because God's got a plan. And... Joseph dies, but before he dies, he says, let me get there, 15. No, I'm going to go past that too. We're running out of time. So Joseph remained in Egypt in his father's, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim, his son's children, to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. That land's a big deal. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And Genesis ends. And what we see at the beginning of Exodus is, 
They had come down into uh, Egypt as 70 people. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land of Egypt was filled with them. So Pharaoh says, we got to do something about these Hebrews. There's too many of them. So they oppress them. They put them into slavery. But as they are enslaved, they continue to multiply. So Pharaoh says to the midwives who are delivering the Hebrew babies, if it's a, if it's a boy, kill it. Midwives said, we're not going to do that. So they don't do it. Mid, the boys are spared. So then finally Pharaoh says, throw the new baby boys into the river. Kill them. Well, there's this kid named Moses who's born. Y'all know Moses, right? He's hidden. He's put in a basket in the Nile. He floats down the Nile. Pharaoh's daughter finds him and adopts him. And Moses spends the first 40 years of his life as an Egyptian. One day he's out and he sees an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew slave. He knows that he's a Hebrew. So he kills the Egyptian and he buries his body in the sand. Next day he goes out, two of his Hebrew kinsmen are fighting. And he says, guys, y'all shouldn't do that. And the guy says this, you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Moses is like, oh, shoot. I didn't know anybody knew about that. So he takes off because he would be judged and he would be killed for killing an Egyptian. So he runs off to a place called Midian where he lives for 40 years. He marries a woman named Zipporah, stays there 40 years. And it says in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What a, what a statement. What a powerful statement that is. So, try to condense this. God shows up in a burning bush and talks to Moses. And He says, I want you to go to Egypt and deliver my people. Moses is like, I, 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 I can't do, do that. I stutter, I stutter. And God's like, who made man's mouth? I'm telling you, you're going to go down to Egypt and you're going to do this. And He tells him, in Exodus 3, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and they say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? This is monstrous. God says to Moses, I am who I am, which is Yahweh. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am sent you, sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, see that all capital L-O-R-D? That's Yahweh. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. You've heard that before, right? And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know, God says, that the king of Egypt will not let you go, because God's got a plan, unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And the next thing we see are ten plagues. You're probably familiar with this. Blood, frogs, lice, flies, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. And finally, the last plague is the slaying of the firstborn. Every firstborn in Egypt died unless... You were an Israelite and you followed the command of God, which was to slaughter a lamb or a goat in place of your firstborn child and put the blood over the doorposts. And when the angel of death come to claim the firstborn, he would see the blood and he would pass over your house. Hence Passover. Okay? And again, I think we hear this all the time and we don't really think about it, but that's exactly what's going on. And this is a picture of what? It's a picture of Jesus. All right, everybody stand up. Move your arms a little bit. All right, sit down. We're going to finish. So that's Passover. He also tells them that you're going to have to run to get out of here, so don't let your bread leaven. Don't let the leaven rise, so that's unleavened bread. The Israelites are sent out of Egypt after that last plague. A pillar of cloud and smoke leads them, which is God's very presence with them. Pharaoh says, you know what? I don't want them gone, so he pursues them. He perishes in the Red Sea. The Israelites are at the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies are coming. God splits the Red Sea. The Israelites walk through on dry ground. Pharaoh pursues them into that. Israelites get out. Sea closes over. Pharaoh and his armies and they're killed. And that's a huge moment for Israelite history, okay? 
God, along the way, God provides manna for them. They're going from Egypt up to Canaan, which should be about an 11-day walk, by the way. Should have took them about 11 or 12 days. It takes them a little longer. Something happens. <clears throat> As they're going out, they come to Mount Sinai, and there is where God gives them the law. The law that will govern everything that they do as a nation because they're going to Canaan, they're going to the promised land, and they're going to set up this nation of Israel where God is the king. It's a theocracy. God runs things and God gives them laws. And He gives them civil laws, He gives them ceremonial laws, and He gives them moral laws in this law that He gives them on Sinai, including the Ten Commandments. Okay, y'all are familiar with the Ten Commandments? You're not going to be able to see this. I tried it earlier. You can't see this. But there's the Ten Commandments, okay? That's, that's the law, but the law is bigger than that. Those are just the tenets of the law. So He gives them this law. And listen to me. Please, please, please hear this. The law is broken into three divisions, ceremonial, civil, and moral. The ceremonial laws are for their worship services, how to kill animals, what to do with them, when to kill them, that kind of thing. The, um, the civil laws are for the governing of the nation of Israel. If somebody kills a man, this is what you do to him. And then there are moral laws, which are just guidelines to be a decent human being. And you need to know that. Because let me ask you, is the law present today? Do we adhere to the law? Ooh, that's a tough question, isn't it? The answer is yes and no. We don't need the ceremonial laws anymore. Jesus was the lamb who was being foreshadowed with all these ceremonial laws. We don't do temple worship anymore. So the ceremonial laws, the religious laws, do not apply to us. We are not the nation of Israel. So we do not take their civil laws upon ourselves. Both of those categories we can learn from and see the nature of God in, but we do not adhere to them. We can take the moral law and say, yeah, this I should do. This is right. So people say, well, do you get to pick and choose which laws you get to keep? Yes, yes, I do. Thank you very much. I do get to pick and choose because I don't need the ceremonial laws. I don't need the civil law, but I do need to live by the moral law. But I don't get to heaven by keeping the law. And guess what? Neither did they. They got to heaven by saying this is God showing His faithfulness and our faith is in God being able to take away our sins as shown by these animals, as shown by these civil obediences. that we, their, their hope was not in keeping the law perfectly because the point of the law was to show them they couldn't keep it perfectly. And they missed it. And they set, themsel set themselves up as a nation who was trying to keep the law and they became arrogant and self-inflated when they got into the promised land. So that takes us through Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, in Numbers, which is, I didn't know this until this week. Numbers is called, the Hebrew title means in the wilderness. I did not know that until this week. And it talks, there's two censuses that take place in Numbers. And they come to the border of the promised land. This is pretty quick, okay, after Sinai. And they should take um, possession of the land, but they get scared because there's giants in the land. They say we're grasshoppers in our own sight compared to these guys. So they don't go into the land. Ten spies, the twelve spies are sent out. Ten come back with a bad report. Uh, Joshua and Caleb come back with a good report. So we can do this. They're like, nope, we're not going in. So they turn back and God says, I tell you what's going to happen. You're going to wander in the wilderness until this generation that doubted dies away. So for 40 years they wander in the wilderness. And then they come back to the promised land, which brings us to Deuteronomy. And we are really almost done, so stay with me. They come to Deuteronomy, which is Moses giving the law for a second time. Deutero is second, nomi is law, second law. And they're about to go into the promised land. Moses gives the law again, recounts everything to remind them. Moses goes up on a mountain and he dies and God buries him. And then a guy named Joshua, one of the spies who had given the good report, takes over. And the book of Joshua is about the conquest of the land, and it's bloody. And God says, wipe them out. Wipe out the... In the Again, the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. That's why they spent that time down in, in Egypt. Now the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. And God is judging the Amorites through His people. So He's saying, wipe them out. They're sinners. Wipe them out. So they do, though. They don't completely wipe them out. They don't do a very good job. They conquer the land. They divide it among the tribes. The book of Judges is a cycle of obedience and disobedience once they're in the land. They're doing all right, but then they worship foreign gods. God puts them into bondage to somebody. They cry out for a deliverer. God sends a judge who delivers them. And that's the cycle through Judges. And at the end of Judges, in Judges 21-25, see how fast we're moving now? Trust me, okay? 
This is the theme of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it is a mess. The Bible's kind of saying until you get to Judges, and then it just loses its mind. Things are crazy. The book of Ruth takes place in the time of Judges. We get to the end of Judges. Samuel is the last judge who was also a prophet. During his time, the people call out they want a king to be like the other nations. Samuel says, y'all don't want that. But God says, the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall rule over them. So he appoints the first king. Now again, we've, we've covered a lot of years here, by the way, in, in these last few statements. So the first uh, king that's set up is a guy named Saul. He's head and shoulders taller than everybody. And he rules for 40 years. So they've got a king. They're like the other nations. And a guy named David starts serving this guy named Saul. David kills a giant named Goliath. Everybody likes this guy named David. Well, David's on the run. And before Saul dies, David is anointed king. Because Saul was disobedient at one point and didn't do what God told him to do. So God said, I'm going to rip the kingdom from you and I'm going to give it to a man after my own heart. So he anoints David while he's still pretty much a young, young boy. David comes into his own. He's serving Saul. He kills Goliath. Saul gets jealous of him, tries to kill him several times. David's out running around. He, he, had, he avoids Saul. He spares Saul's life a couple of times. And then after Saul dies, David is anointed, listen, the king of Judah, which is only one tribe. The other 11 tribes make Ishbosheth, who was Saul's son, their king. Ishbosheth rules for two years over the 11 tribes, David over one, and then Ishbosheth is killed, and then David is made king of the entire kingdom, all 12 tribes. He conquers Jerusalem, sets up his capital there. He reigns for 40 years. And then one more covenant here before we finish out. Okay? God makes a covenant with David. Now when the king lived in his house, King David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Listen, go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest, David, from all your enemies. Moreover, here you go, this is huge. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. His name's Solomon and he does that. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Did y'all hear what I just said? Forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, David, shall be established forever. Anybody know who the king of Israel is today? No, you don't. Because they don't have a king. So God lied. Did he? Let's run to the end here. Here we go. David dies. Solomon becomes king. He builds this glorious temple. 
And the presence of God fills this temple when they dedicate it. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The point the priest couldn't go in there. The glory of God filled it. They carried the ark of God that they had built back when Moses received the law. They carried the ark of the covenant in. Glory fills, smoke. Everybody's out. Oh, they can't go in. You're good and your love endures forever. And God's presence is with His people in His temple as He is seated above the cherubim on top of the ark. And the glory of God rests upon the people of Israel. And they live happily ever after. No. Solomon, who received all this, and the kingdom reached its peak under Solomon. So I could see them thinking, this is going to last forever. But he becomes disobedient when he gets older. He marries foreign wives. He follows after foreign gods. And God says, I'm going to rip the kingdom from you. At least most of it. And so when he dies after 40 years, first three kings reign 40 years each. When he dies, his son Rehoboam takes over the, the, the nation of Israel. And he's a jerk. And he says, I'm going to tax you more than my father taxed you. I'm going to work you harder than my father worked you. And all the tribes said, what have we got to do with David? We'll become our own nation. And they do. So 11 tribes leave, really 10. It's kind of tricky. But they form the nation of Israel, which is the northern kingdom. These southern, it's a tribe and a half. It's, 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 uh, it's Judah and Benjamin, who joins them a little later, and a half tribe of Manasseh, form the nation of Judah. So you've got two nations, the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. And then what we have after that is a long history of good kings, bad kings, mostly bad kings, who are governing uh, Judah and Israel. Again, I'll print these out for you all if you want them. Let me know if you want them. This shows the good... See, the, the darker ones are the good kings. There's not many of them. Left side is the kings of Israel in the north, kings of Judah on the south on the right. And so in 722 B.C., since you can see the northern kingdom really didn't have a good king. 722 B.C., the Assyrians, who were the world power, come through and they take the northern kingdom of Israel and they send them into exile. And that's the northern ten tribes. Those are the lost tribes of Israel because they get dispersed among the nations and they can't really keep up with who's where. Okay, Assyria tries to take Judah, but they get turned back. That's a great story. You need to read that. Later, 586 B.C., the Babylonians have overtaken the Assyrians. The Babylonians actually come in and they take Judah. They send off some people in a deportation to exile. And then later in 586, they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, and they take the rest of the people of God into exile. And this kingdom that was going to last forever is not there anymore. So what happens? Well, the Medo-Persians take over the Babylonians, and that's where we picked up Ezra. A guy named Cyrus says, anybody that wants to go back to Jerusalem can go back to Jerusalem. They go back and they rebuild the altar and then the temple. Esther happens, which is a Persian uh, story, basically. Then Ezra comes back, Ezra 7 through 10. He reestablishes some temple worship and some law. And then Nehemiah comes back, and he builds the walls, and Jerusalem's a city again, and they, they bring all this in. And then the Old Testament history ends. Still no king in Israel. Basically they're slaves to the Persians. Malachi, which we just finished up, comes in and says, I'm going to smite the land with a curse. And the Old Testament ends. So what happened? What happened to God's plan? Forever. Sands of the sea. Dust of the earth, this land will be yours and your people's forever, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. And now they're slaves in their own land with this pathetic little temple and this pathetic little wall and they're miserable and they're disobedient. So God's plan obviously failed, right? Absolutely, positively not. Absolutely, positively not. Nothing haphazard here. No accidents, no change of plans, no change in God, no change of God. The plan was always the plan, and the plan will always be the plan. For if you believed Moses, Jesus would say in John 5, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my Go ahead and unhitch yourself from this and plunge eyebrow deep into heresy because that's what you'll do if you unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. He wrote 
of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words, Jesus says. Next week we'll cover the intertestamental period, which is a 400-year period where God's silent, but he's still working his plan out. And he's working his plan to a point in time that we'll come into in Matthew when Jesus comes. And the plan is the plan, has always been the plan, and will always be the plan. Let's pray. God, you are faithful. We sang it this morning. We've never walked alone. We're kept within your perfect plan that includes 4,000 years of Old Testament history. Help us to see it, God. Help us to see you and help us to see our place in this plan and help us to know that the culmination of it all was the crucifixion of your son, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and now he sits enthroned forever as the king of Israel. And his throne, his dominion, will have no end. Help us to know it and help us to trust him for the salvation that you provide. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll just stand and receive a benediction before we go back and eat. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.